kind of a kind of a busy week and get a chance to once a year we go down to the conference that they hold in Florida. And uh, so we, we teach the newbies not to take pictures on the beach. You know, Matt Santa Clara did that one year, like taking a picture of selfie on the beach and sending it to his wife. He says, Matt, don't do that. You know, your wife's back home with the kids in the rain and the cold, and you're down there on the beach sending pictures. Love you, honey. Miss you. No. <laughs> Keep us out of it. Make sure that we're not seen anywhere. Um, they can't. That was a whole year of marriage counseling. That's a whole. <laughs> <laughs> then came came back from that and and uh, flew up to Indiana for my grandmother's funeral. Thankfully, with with John Mark working for Piedmont, gets us standby tickets and we able to get up there and, and back pretty pretty relatively easy and inexpensively. Uh, I think what was was humbling about about the uh, funeral on Friday and came back early Saturday morning was. Um, you know, here she is in a very, very modest, poor little town, Edinburgh, Indiana. She's buried less than less than a mile from where she was born in the old little modest home she was born in, 0.4 miles down from the cemetery. And 104 years later, full circle of life, here she is buried just a few, just a minute away from where she was born. And... and uh, and ultimately what's left is, uh, did she know the Lord, and uh, did she live a life that was pleasing to Him, is all that is is left to talk about. So thankful for that, and um, when you're 104, you don't have any friends left, so it's just, uh, <laughs> just my parents and my sister and her husband there, and, and uh, the pastor from the church that was that was there as well. So that's a blessing to be, to be, to get up there and make that effort to be part of that. So. And she did know the Lord indeed. So <clears throat> Rita's, Rita's father's here. Go, we go back, you know, he, Timberlake back in the day, back in 98, sent a team of men to go work on a project in France, and he was on that team. So he knew Jane and I when we were still young and two kids, and uh, thankful for, for that team to come over. I mean, it's, it's amazing the impact they had just coming over in that, that time and the good memories of, of that. So thankful for for those memories. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to turn there and I'm going to this let me skip a little bit on what we saw last time and and try to usually kind of I was going to come back on this just a little bit just to bring us back up to speed. But let's go ahead and and walk right into that. So let's go ahead and, and um <clears throat> Let's go and read. We're going to look through today if the time allows. I don't know if we have that much time to read through to see the 18 verses here. Let me go ahead and look at verse look at verse uh, verse 3, chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3. It says we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way he breaks this down in, in three different categories here by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. I think he's got the, quite the exhaustive list here of, uh, uh, of the trials. I mentioned last time that uh, one author calls it the catalog of hardships. And some of you might feel like you have your own 
your own catalog of, of hardships. Describes them here, verse 6. Verse 6 will describe the, the means by which he <clears throat> um, endured these by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left. Verse 8 through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affection. What he's saying is that our, our love for you is unrestricted. Our love for you is, is, is wide open, but you don't reciprocate. Your, your love for us is limited, is restricted. Actually, when he piggybacks on the next part, we said don't, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In verse 14, I, I think it's a continuation of that, of that thought. Actually, what restricts their fellowship, what restricts their love for, for him. I say that because a lot of times we take these verses a little bit independently when really they're in, they're in, the, flow of, in, the, in the flow of a letter. So he says, verse 11, we've spoken freely uh, to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, uh, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So his appeal is that you would widen your hearts. Would your love for us be unrestricted and, and open towards us? Verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So you're like, wow, is he, is he jumping from one, from one thought to another? Is he putting a pause there and jumping to one thought to another? I think actually there's, we continue to see the train of thoughts. Again, sometimes we're not, we analyze and we study scripture kind of like, especially this passage, which we're very familiar with. Uh, and we don't, I'm not saying we take it out of context in a bad way. I just mean there's a flow of thought that, that comes here. And we're going to look at today, I do believe that, yes, that, that passage the application to that passage can be marital uh, in, in nature, as in don't be married to unbelievers. But I believe the, the, the first and foremost, I don't know that he has that in mind as his, as his thought. I think it's an application of, of truth, not necessarily what he's trying to get at. There's a broader understanding of what it means to be unequally yoked with, with unbelievers. As a matter of fact, I think one thing that's helpful is there's a, there's a positive side to that as well, is be yoked. Be yoked with believers. And so there's, there's two aspects of that we'll look at a little bit this morning. For what partnership has righteousness? Then he goes through these, these, these contrasts. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we, for we are, again, now here is the plural form. It's not you are the temple of the living God. So we are. The, the temple of the living God, as God said, then he's going to quote Isaiah. We'll come back on that if, if time allows. Let me pick back up a little bit on that first list of, of hardships because we picked up the first one last week. We talked about the endurance piece. So he, he starts out with uh, um, verse, verse 4, middle verse 4, 4b there. He says, by, so he, he, he commends, he says, we don't go about, he says, but our servants of God, we commend ourselves in, in every way. Remember, we're talking about Completing the thought in the end of chapter 5, starting beginning in chapter 6, talks about reconciliation. Chapter 5 talks about reconciliation with God, what that looks like, and that being the foundation for what we saw in verse 1. It is work together in harmony, reconciliation one with another is his exhortation, his appeal, working together with him, verse, verse 1 in chapter 6. 
we saw the key evidences of this. In other words, it appears that it could be it could appear that that Paul shifts abruptly to demonstrate, you know, how his his apostle is authentic. But he's what he's describing here is Paul's ministry of reconciliation that God's given him. Here's the evidences of reconciliation in the life that he lived. And the first one, of course, is the idea of, of endurance. And we talked about last week that really endurance is the, the key ingredient that allows him to sustain these other trials. The idea of endurance is the idea of being steadfast and being patient. We talked about last week a little bit about how, to, how, do you, how do we develop endurance. How do we develop that in our children? How do we train that in our children to learn to endure, to learn to be, to be patient? We talked a little bit about that. Then he describes in afflictions, in crisis, in stressful situations. As we're reading this, probably can say, yes, amen. I can relate to that. Then he gets, he gets specific in the following list here. He gets, he'll get specific, six specific circumstances. Talk about beatings, being put in jail, uh, in mobs, in, in hard work. In sleepless nights, in times of hunger. So he describes in a specific way all the trials and tribulations that he's had to endure, that he's had to uh, work through. But are, as the, see, they're, they're seeing the trials that he's going through as discrediting his apostleship. He's saying the trials I'm going through are actually evidences of my apostleship. Our evidence is that no longer have I been reconciled with Christ, but we're reconciled with each other because together we endure these hardships together. So he's trying to demonstrate that, hey, that these are evidences of the fact that I've, I, I've served the Lord and not, on the contrary, evidences that somehow I've been, um, been disavowed and that I'm, that I'm not an apostle of Jesus Christ. He walks through this list, and I'm walking through these things quickly. I want to pick up on verse 14 this morning, but I want to not miss some of these things we didn't see last week. One, he describes eight manners of ministry and the eight means of ministry. Eight manners of ministry and eight means of ministry. The manner of ministry is how things are done. How, how is ministry done? Well, he describes impurity, uh, impure, pure, a pure devotion to the Lord. So as I've, I've endured all these things, this list of things that I've endured, I've endured them Impurity, meaning pure, undivided devotion for the Lord. I've endured them in, in knowledge. Here is the idea of, of general knowledge, meaning it's not the knowledge of understanding why these things are happening. It's the knowledge of God in a broader sense of embracing God for who he is and what he does. It's not the idea that somehow in these trials I understood what God is doing. It's embracing knowledge of God in a broader sense. Um, I I was when this came to mind. I was thinking of a of a of a of a um, older hymn that that we sing called um, "I Know Not Why God's Wondrous Grace." And he goes on in the hymn says, "I know I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me He's made known. I don't know why unworthy Christ's love. I don't know why I've been redeemed for His own. But I know, and here's what I do know. And the song continues. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able." to keep that which he's committed to him against that day. And the beauty of that song is described, what Paul described, he says he has a general knowledge. He doesn't, in his endurance, is not necessarily understanding everything God is doing, but is knowing God and for who he is and trusting God for who he is in, in that. So through these trials and purity and knowledge and patience and in kindness he describes here, 
You know, trials can make us what? They can make us bitter, can make us angry. Can, you know, sometimes you see somebody that's been kind of sour, and you think, yeah, they've gone through a hard, they've had a hard life, as if the hard life has soured them. And so the manner in which he has embraced this catalog of hardships is a pure devotion to Christ, a knowledge of the Lord for who he is, and a trust in him for who he is, in patience and endurance, and in kindness. It's, it's a beautiful thing when you see someone embrace hardship and, and that makes them tender and not hard. It makes them tender and not hard. That comes that from trusting the Lord as well. And then he describes the means, which is what enables him to achieve this. What enables him to endure this is he describes the Holy Spirit, talks about genuine love, talks about word of truth. This is not the wishful thinking. This is not positive thinking. This is... Uh, trust in the Lord and His truth, and then He describes through the through the power of God. The final contrast here, if you look in verse, let me see through. So now in verse eight, in verse eight, He broke it down in verse four by great endurance. Second segment in verse six by purity and knowledge, and then verse seven by truthful speech. Then He walks into to verse eight and does these contrasts in. In verse 8, armed, he says, armed with weapons of righteousness. He'll give nine contrasts in ministry. Again, what is he doing? He says, here's what it looks like from a human perspective. Here's what it looks like from a spiritual perspective. And you're seeing the human perspective, and this is telling you this, but this is what you should be seeing. So he gives this list in doing so. He sets forth nine contrasts or, or nine things that represent an evaluation of his ministry. We have the human point of view. On one hand, we have the, the point of view of Christ in the other. So what's the first one? We have in verse 8. What's the first, what's the first one we have in verse 8? It says through what? Through? Where was it? Through honor and dishonor. One from a one from one perspective, from a human perspective, this is like dishonoring, but from a heavenly perspective, this is what glorifies and and honors the Lord. He goes through slander and praise. Praise is that which is of, of good report. Treated as impostors and yet are true. In other words, you know, some people say, you know, uh, meaning impostors, meaning you're uh, you're not true, but yet, yet are true. Verse nine, as unknown, and yet well known. Of course, well known by whom? By the one that matters. And that really is what matters, is it not? Even this past week, you know, Jerry Rag often uh, comments or just observes the. You know, how many people in ministry sometimes, uh, you know, they're there to make a name for themselves, their reputation. Uh, and uh, he, he talks about, you know, many people, they, and I'm glad people write books. We need people who write books. But I'm saying they write books, and in doing so, do they, do, but they ultimately he's trying to say, ultimately our job is what, to care for our flock as, as shepherds. I mean, you see this, you know, that many are as unknown yet to the world, but yet, yet well-known. As dying, in other words, in the eyes of the world, you're you're frail, you're you're fragile, you're, you're nothing to behold. 
he almost died a number of times. He says, but yet, yet, what? We live as punished from a moral perspective and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I like how he says about the poverty one in verse 10. Is that beautiful? As poor. Yeah, from a moral perspective, we've got nothing to offer. We, we don't have any worldly goods. We're, we're poor. He says, but what? Yet, he doesn't say he's rich. He goes beyond that. He says, yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So as, as he embraces his, his ministry, as he, as he encourages the, the believers to embrace him and, and love him openly, as he'll say in the, in the following uh, couple of verses, verses 11 through 13, he does this contrast of how his ministry is perceived from a human eyes and how it's perceived from spiritual eyes. Let me just tell you, the spiritual eye is the only one that matters. I mean, from a worldly perspective, a lot of things we do don't make sense. It's a waste of time. It's boring. It's whatever, you name it. And he describes it here. And yet, in the spiritual eyes, what a, what a blessing to see things through the, through the eyes of the Lord here. And then in verse 11, he embraces and encourages them to open up their affection and say, I have not restrained my love for you. I have not restricted. He talks about the word being used is, is the description of, of a narrow place. In other words, I've, my, my love for you is not restricted. He encourages them to embrace and open up their love for him. <clears throat> so that, that wraps up those thoughts there. But then he picks up. And, and the key statement he makes in, in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He had just made this, this appeal to them uh, of working together. I say this because I don't think that uh, he's, he's making an emphatic statement that we, if I were to ask you what does the verse apply to, we, we go right to the idea of marriage. And again, I think it's the rightful application of what he's saying here. But the context is what? The context is, is the reconciliation, working together, and seeing his ministry and affirming his ministry and opening and embracing their love for him. And he says, your love for me is limited. I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to you to embrace my ministry, embrace my apostleship, love me fully. Then he, then he, says, but he says, don't. It actually starts out by saying not. The, the word in, 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 in grammar starts out with not. Don't. It's an emphatic statement he's trying to make. It says don't be unequally yoked with, with unbelievers. So when you, when you see that, there's, there's a few things you, you understand by what he's describing here. One, if he's bringing it up to this point, I think it's still in the flow of his thinking. Basically, what he's describing here is something that, one, is keeping them from loving him fully. One is something that's keeping them from reconciling as a body. Three is something that's keeping them from working together fully and completely and devoted to Christ. So he's, if he's bringing this issue here, it's not like he's, oh, by the way, let me sidestep this and just talk about people who are married to unbelievers and exhort them that way. He's, in the flow of thought is this desire to, exhortation of verse, of, of, uh, verse 1, working together with him and being reconciled together. So three things I put down here that's that's draws our attention to this text. One, the implication is a, a, a broad address, meaning it's a broad uh, need in this church. We see that in the way the phrase is described in chapter 6, 
verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, where he continues on this theme. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. In other words, this is part of a broader appeal to the church. This is not a, a parenthesis in what he's saying. Say, hey, by the way, let me, let me address married couples here or your desire to marry unbelievers. This is part of a broader appeal to the church to be reconciled. And as we see through these verses, that we would cleanse ourselves so that we can work and walk in harmony. Two, the contextual problem here that he's addressing talks about working together, this appeal that he has, make room in your heart, the broader appeal is one that describes this issue that he's addressing as part of the broader appeal that he's presenting here. So basically, it points to the fact that the entire congregation was susceptible to whatever prompted this passage to be written. This passage addresses the entire congregation. So though it can be applied to marriage, certainly it may not be primarily about marriage and certainly has broader implications. Uh, and so there's something here that's keeping them from... from um, it's an obstacle to the gospel of reconciliation that he's been expounding on. It prevented the Corinthians from extending their affections towards Paul. So he, he speaks of what it means to be unequally yoked with, with, un, with unbelievers. He'll break the statement down into, into uh, five synonyms or five what we would call rhetorical contrasts. So make five contrasts that follows explaining why it's not possible, why you should not be unequally yoked with with unbelievers the command is one that you know we understand what it means to be yoked together which is the idea of being uh, joined joined together uh, if you go back and this, the, here's the difficulty with this word being used in this passage one it's not repeated elsewhere in the New Testament which means it's a unique use of the word nine times out of ten you take a word in, in the New Testament you'll be able to compare it to other usages when it's not you're limited, so you, you lean on the context. It was translated, there is another comparable word in the Old Testament, of course, now you're talking about Hebrew and Aramaic, so it's not Greek, so you, you don't have exactly apples to apples. Uh, in Leviticus, it talks about, Leviticus 19, about uh, not letting, uh, keeping your, your cattle separate so they don't breed amongst themselves. So this idea of mixing uh, and inner intermixing and intermarriage there. So, I think what Paul has in mind, first of all, is not a prohibition of, of casual contact. Now, at the end here, I'm looking, I'm looking at the time because I really want us to get to two. I want, to get, I want us to get to two probing questions as how we apply this exhortation in our own lives. What does it mean to not be yoked with unbelievers? He's not talking about casual contact, having friendships, but he is talking about having what I would describe like covenant-like relationships with unbelievers, especially to the point where they would violate your own covenant that you would have with God. So in other words, it's not having casual contact with believers. It's establishing covenant-like relationship with unbelievers. I'm going to just make an assumption here. Let me see. I'll walk through a few questions here, giving a, a few pictures of the marital applications what it means within the context of marriage. And then I'm just going to walk, I'm just going to leave that there and go to the five um, rhetorical statements that he makes following uh, that exhortation, verse 14. He has five of them. And of course, as you read them, they're rhetorical in nature, which means, hey, they're, they're obvious the way he states them that there's, there's, um, 
there's no answer needed, right? Because the way he states them means that they're rhetorical in nature. So let me, let me preface this by saying this. One, yes, there's an application to marriage. But what I want us to see here, I think, is what Paul is addressing, is that there's a problem within the church of your affection towards me. There's a problem with the church that you're out of step with the gospel. There's a problem with the church that we're not working together of reconciliation. The evidence of your reconciliation with God should be evidenced by the way you, in, you relate one to another. We saw that last week. Part of the problem with that is part of the reason why this is not happening is because you're yoking yourselves up with unbelievers. Not just from a marriage point of view, but from a relationship point of view, you're under the influence. The relationships that you're building are with unbelievers, and that is keeping you from fully embracing me as an apostle and fully loving me as an apostle and fully bringing about the, the, the harmony that should be within the church. Because if you understand it with that broader implication, then you make an application to marriage. Yes, you know, that's the first thing I'll tell my kids, right? Hey, what's the five non-negotiables for looking for a spouse? Well, the first one, they have to be a believer. Why? Because we should not be yoked with an unbeliever. Absolutely. But much, much broader than that is, is how we relate to unbelievers, how we engage in relationship with unbelievers and the influence that that might have upon us and in this case how it limits their their love towards him so look at the rhetorical statements and then we'll walk to two questions with the time that we have one he says don't walk into a a a partnership because what does righteousness have with with lawlessness you know one thing i put down here is after every rhetorical statement is I put a, a positive statement. Okay. If the exhortation is don't be don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, the positive affirmation is what? Be yoked with believers. So he says the first thing is, you know what? In verse in verse um, verse fourteen, what partnership has righteousness with with lawlessness? That partnership is a communion. It's not so much about presence as it is influence. It's not so much about how much time you spend with, it's how much influence they exert on you. That partnership, that communion, that you partake and you share, you share together. What part do you share together with, with unbelievers? Then he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? Then this idea of fellowship, the word koinonia, a community, an association, Participating together. So what, what fellowship do you have? A communion. And I tell you, when we observe believers, when they walk into fellowship with unbelievers and they start having this community with unbelievers, it, he says what? What does, what does light have to do with darkness? There's no, there's no commonality between light and, and darkness. So the, the positive impact would be what? Build fellowship with believers. Build, build community with believers. I can't tell you how many times I've seen believers build community with unbelievers because they, they share another common passion over here. And doing that, they build community around that. 
of course, it ultimately is the idea of how much influence does that exert on 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 a group, right? Jeff, I think we've I've heard many times too, even Christians say, well, some of my closest friends are non-believers because there's so much hypocrisy. <laughs> and that's part of the, that's the two that's. Two questions I have asked. Did you read my notes, Janie? I'm supposed to look at my notes. No, no, I, that, that's part of the application piece I want to get to. Um, is that clock right or is it fast? It's right. What accord, what accord, I like the, the, the word accord is the word that we get our, our word symphony from. So what harmony, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is the name of Satan. Rather, be what? Be in harmony with believers. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This portion is what part is assigned to. A portion is something that's tied to the whole. So the, the, the idea of having a portion of something is tied to a bigger, bigger piece, right? Well, our portion is what? Our portion is not tied to just what is temporal. Our portion is tied to that which is eternal. Says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We don't share the same portion of the whole. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Again, the we here is plural, not singular. So it's not he's not addressing the individual nature of our bodies being the temple of the Holy Ghost. He's saying as a as a body of Christ, we are the temple of the living God. So Here's the two questions that I'd like to for us to elaborate on. And, and I feel like today, I feel like I've had two minutes. It's weird. I'm out of, out of time and thoughts already. First question, why would a professing believer be willing and desires of marrying an unbeliever? I mean, you read this, you're thinking, yes, that's one of the, that's one of the practical applications. Why would a believer desire be attracted to marrying a non-believer? Human thinking. Human thinking? Opposites attract. <laughs> I don't know if opposites attract is really the, the application I want to... Wow. Yeah, usually that's a talker and a non-talker. That's not... I would say primarily... Young in your faith too, and you're not. I mean, I'm a lot 51 more mature in my faith than I was 26 when I was married. You passed the 50 mark, Fred. I didn't know that. So, I think that plays into it, and you don't. You're not looking down the line 20 years at getting along. You're thinking in the moment, you know, love and all that great stuff. So, and it, it was great. <laughs> I had a uh, had a friend that was marrying an unbeliever because she was in her late thirties and she thought that she couldn't find a Christian man. Hmm. So that marriage piece becomes an idol in of itself. Yes, people think that they can save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what she said. She yeah. said she yeah. was praying for him, praying for his soul. So Scripture never addresses the issue from the perspective of, of saving a spouse unless you're already married in First Corinthians 7 where Paul already addresses the married to an unbeliever idea. But he says you could try for the sake of the gospel stay with an unbeliever. Never, of course, we see that, that idea of marrying. 
Then the second question, why would a professing believer say that, that his or her best friends are unbelievers? Or that they get along better with unbelievers? And I've heard that many times as well. So I want you just to, to think through that just a moment. Let me, let me answer these two questions and give at least some thoughts on that, given that we're, given that we're about out of time here. I, put, I've, I wrote it down, and it says, it says this way. It says, if you, if you find yourself having more in common with unbelievers than believers, or being more comfortable with unbelievers than believers, or enjoying the company of unbelievers more than that of believers, may I suggest is because your passions and your desires and your priorities are aligned with theirs. I mean, that's as simple as it is. If, if I have a greater affinity with the unbelieving world, it's not because their passions are aligned with mine. It's because my passions are aligned with theirs. This is not that kind of statement. When people say that kind of statement, it is not an indictment on the church. I know a lot of times it is said as an indictment on the church. But it is really not an indictment on believers or on the church is really an indictment on what that person has grown to love and spend time with. And it is a sign that that person has potential idols in their life that they need to abandon as well. So don't, let me, don't hear me say by this that you can't have unbelieving friends. I've got unbelieving friends. Um, I spent 10 years in France in a table tennis club with men I, I grew to to enjoy the fellowship that knew who I was, that knew my testimony, that knew the gospel, but they were beyond the gospel, right? That was good for me because I needed that crutch, but they didn't need that crutch. They came to the States and visited with us. But my affections for them surround one small sphere of influence, and it's a, it's a joy of playing table tennis together. But my heart beat was a church, and that was never in question. There's, no, there's never any competition between the two. There's never any, any question as to where my allegiance and desires were. So let me, let me dig just a little bit deeper. So I'm going I'm to twist the knife just a little bit harder here. So just brace yourself for a minute. <clears throat> I'll say this, though. Please understand when I'm, when I'm saying this. I, I do say it as, as, a, as a love for... For you and the desire to see you thrive spiritually. I don't say this to just say hard things. The key in this principle is not developing friendships with Christian friends who share the same idols. You understand what I mean by that? Oh, well, well, you know, basically we're, we're all Christian, but basically what it is, we're all Christians sharing the same idol. That's not helpful either. The, as, as you and I embrace the first, his first exhortation at the beginning of that chapter, to not receive the grace of God in vain. The problem he's having in the church of their inability to embrace him 
and to embrace each other and be reconciled to each other had to do part of the problem is right here he's describing you're, you're yoked with unbelievers not just a marriage but your passions your desires your, are, are pursuing the things they're pursuing and you're tied to them and you're not tethered to me but you're tethered to the world and in our circles where everything is Christianized we tether ourselves to friends Christian friends who have good, good desires but ultimately are not those who lead us towards towards spiritual things as well he finishes his exhortation here he says we are the temple of the living God as God said I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people therefore go out from their midst be separate from them says the Lord and touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord says the Lord Almighty he's quoting Isaiah the people of Jerusalem had fallen under the captivity of Babylon. Some had fled to Egypt, thinking that by fleeing to Egypt, we're going to flee the persecutions of the uh, oppressors. And he's warning them to be separate from the world that you're, that you're in. So a lot, of, a lot of very poignant applications that we can draw from this. And uh, may the Lord just use his word to, to exhort us. Towards, towards righteousness and holiness. Father, we, we thank you for the, for the words of Paul. He's, he's bold in his words, and yet he's loving and compassionate in his words. Lord, there are many things that can divide us, Lord. I just pray that we might be, be yoked with believers, that we might build our fellowship, our com- community, our portion, our love, that we, might, that we might, Lord, build that around the people of God, around the body of Christ, around the church that you place us in. And in doing so, Lord, that we might not just grow closer to you, but grow closer to each other. We thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the words of Paul and Scripture. Lord, the blessing of having your word teach us. Bless the remainder of this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.